Welcome to the fifth episode of Dialogical Spaces podcast. Dialogical Spaces is a podcast which aims to reflect critically on structural issues affecting diversity and inclusion in our research, education, and practices. We do this specifically with the community of the University of Twente, but all other listeners are, of course, also more than welcome. During seven episodes, we will draw on a series of webinars, interviews, and conversations about inclusive education and critical pedagogies, decolonializing the curriculum, shaping universities for gender diversity, and discussions about race and technology in research. I am Fena Imara Hufslot, a PhD researcher at the Faculty of ITC at the University of Twente. And I am Ana Maria Bustamante Duarte, and we will be accompanying you today. In this episode, Dr. Maren Berensen will join us as our main guest. Their webinar was titled Tokens of Diversity, Why Walk the Walk When You Can Talk the Talk. Maren is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Twente. And their current work actually explores issues related to personal identity in the context of administrative processes and sex testing in sports, philosophy and mental health, also anti-genderism, populism and religion, and also national identities as normative concepts. Madden is relatively new to the University of Twente, and we were really excited when we read their profile because they address a lot of the issues that we'd been talking about during our conversations and in the previous webinars from this more philosophical perspective, which was something that we hadn't really thought of at the beginning mm -hmm. of designing this project, I think, yeah. but actually provided a really interesting view Yeah, for the discussions about uh, diversity in thought as well. Yeah, we actually uh, talked that it would be really interesting to have someone that could introduce us also a little bit further to the context on, for example, how are knowledges produced, if there are, let's say, injustice practices attached to them, yeah. how are these, like the social practices that are related to the way that, that the knowledge that we are considering, let's say, value or not value that certain, like in certain spaces would develop. Yeah. And that's the reason actually why we invited Martin also because their discussion was very, very related to the whole technological advancement that it, it was a little bit of what Fen and I, we normally work in our day-to-day -day yeah. research yeah. and kind of courses as well. And I think in this webinar, we also touch upon a lot of issues that Aminata, for example, already introduced. Yeah. And Paola built upon in talking about epistemologies from the South, just that Madden right now brings more this philosophical background. And it's quite a deep dive into the philosophical theory, but they do a great job in explaining it and taking us in this way of thinking and analyzing diversity and thing in thought. What I'll try to do is I'm going to introduce you to some general themes in um, philosophy, specifically the philosophy of knowledge. And then I'm going to try to apply that to the question of how we can, well, create diversity, manage diversity, increase diversity in academic spaces primarily. All of this discussion is what we are listening into the webinar that you can hear just now. So the background for this talk is going to be epistemology. And epistemology is a field 
in philosophy with which deals with basic questions about knowledge. So within epistemology, you raise questions such as how do we actually know what we know? That is, how do how do people actually acquire knowledge about stuff? Um, so it has also obvious connections to philosophy of science, for instance, where people would ask what scientific knowledge is, um, what people are doing when they're engaging in scientific activities, and so on and so forth. But epistemology in general is also about everyday knowledge. So questions like, how do you actually know something when you read it on the news? Like, can you say that that's actually knowledge when you read it on the news, for instance? Similar question, when is our knowledge actually good enough? Um, and another related question would be, when are you justified in announcing to someone else that you know something? So when you have enough justification, enough grounding and foundation to tell another person, okay, I'm an authority on this. I can tell you that I know something about this. And there is a bunch of different answers to all of these questions. So I'm not going to go through a lot of theoretical details here, but rather give you a two-minute history of epistemology. This is something that you should never do, especially not in a philosophy course. I'm going to do it nevertheless. Um, I'm leaving out most of it, um, and I hope this is sort of this. This is the disclaimer here, right? Um, I, I'm focusing on what's usually called it's it's a sort of specific tradition of epistemology called the analytic tradition, mostly um, analytic coming from analytic philosophy, and this is mostly Anglophone philosophy, so it's Anglophone and Eurocentric. Um, but sort of this is the bit that I'm going to give you. Um, and this bit start as most Eurocentric philosophy with Plato. Um, and one reconstruction of what Plato had to say about knowledge is to define knowledge as justified true belief. So again, this is a reconstruction. This is not something that Plato actually wrote in those words, but you can reconstruct him in, him in this way. Um, now, what does this mean? So um, basically, you have the element of belief. That is, you have to have some kind of where you can say, okay, so I have a kind of content in my mind that qualifies as a belief, as something that I know. Um, so you can't have knowledge about something that you have no attitude towards or no consciousness of whatsoever. That's the idea. So as part of uh, the webinar, Maren actually discussed a little bit on the concept of truth, particularly within this larger idea of um, epistemologies and how they are yeah. fully embedded in science and how and what is that um, in science, let's say in between parentheses or in research, <laughs> we also consider um, what is the truth and what we evaluate as the truth. And then I don't know if you have an example on that or further talks on what Maren talk about the idea of truth that you want to share with us? I thought it was really interesting how they talked about how um, groups of people, even if they think alike, can still be wrong, Yeah, um, which is so true, right? Um, I have seen that in my own research as well, or at least like how there is so much discussion about what the right thing is, um, depending on the perspective that you look at, in my case, water infrastructure or water management. Some people say it should all be about efficiency and others are talking about nature inclusiveness. And there is no, no consensus about what is included in what we're talking about, nor what the main problem is actually. Yeah, and actually on that, we can now hear what Maren is mentioning about the truth from the webinar. 
truth, that's a difficult one. I'm going to get to that in a second. And justification basically means that you're not just claiming something out of thin air, but that you actually can respond to someone if that person were to ask you, okay, so how do you actually know this? It's kind of like the philosopher's equivalent of engaging in a discussion on social media and telling people, but what are your sources? And then responding with a link or something like that. But those are the three elements of Plato's definition of knowledge. Now, each one of these could be discussed at length. What sort of a lot of epistemologists, philosophers did, at least in Eurocentric philosophy throughout um, the century, so basically throughout two millennia, was to discuss the question what truth is. And I'm, I'm just going to give you two two basic ideas of what truth might mean, both of which have serious problems, but they're sort of their contrast serves well, I think, to indicate the tension here. Um, so one idea would be to say, well, truth is just when your beliefs correspond to reality out there. So if there's a state of affairs or an object or whatever in the world out there that you can measure and quantify and describe, and that corresponds to, to your beliefs about this, then that what it means for your belief to be true. Which raises the question, well, so what exactly are the objects that this belief is supposed to respond to? Because, well, how do, one question would be, how do we know about atoms in that case? Um, the other idea is to basically say, well, I mean, reality is complicated to begin with. And this whole correspondence idea um, is also difficult. So let's just go with truth means that your beliefs really fit well with other beliefs that you might have about other things. So the idea is you have a system of beliefs and it fits well together. And that's where truth comes from. Conspiracy theories, for instance, are very coherent belief systems. Oftentimes, not all of them, but many of them are pretty coherent, but they don't qualify as truth. Um, and the fact that they're so coherent actually makes it worse. Um, so that's the basic idea. So that's a, a one part of the discussion about truth. So this brings us to Madden's explanation of social epistemology. So in social epistemology, you're, you're less interested in sort of just looking at one person and their belief system in isolation, but you actually want to look at the kind of social structures around that person, that structure what that person experiences or communicates as knowledge. Now, what does it mean to actually look at knowing um, as a kind of within its social context and as a social practice? It might mean actually, you know, having a political discussion with someone about something that you read on the news. It might mean, um, as I put it here, um, you study in a textbook or you study course literature and then you write an exam about it. Um, it could mean, um, and this is this family lexicon, um, is that families develop their own kind of vocabulary to talk about things within the family. It doesn't have to be a secret language, but it could be sort of the kind of way in which you talk to very close friends. Um, the way you talk about these things actually constitutes also a way of knowing what your relationship is like. Um, other examples could be, you know, working in a lab with someone that's sort of the, the classical philosophy of science example, 
or if you're a lawyer arguing case in court, or this is just, I mean, this is just because I like silly things arguing with someone on Facebook. Could ideally, in an ideal world, Facebook is not ideal, but could also be a form of knowing if it goes well. Most of the time, it doesn't. Sometimes people can actually learn new things from discussions on social media, right? Um, and these are social practices, and that's yeah, that would be a social model of, of knowing things, which pays attention to the structure that governs these kinds of interactions and activities. The problem um, with the social model of knowing is that you then actually open the door for questions of justice, because if knowing is a social practice and if it is shaped or perhaps even determined by social structures then the practices and the structures could be unjust. And this is what's being discussed in the literature on epistemic injustice. You could argue that the literature on epistemic injustice began itself with an epistemic injustice, because it's usually, at least in a sort of very new discussion on these things, I mean, the themes are much older, um, but sort of what goes in Anglophone philosophy under the rubric of epistemic injustice right now often refers to Miranda Fricker's um, work, book of the same name, Epistemic Injustice, which was published in 2007. Um, in the decade that followed the publication of the book, a lot of people pointed out, hey, you seem to have taken a lot of ideas from people without acknowledging them. Specifically, you seem to have taken a lot of ideas from work that black feminists have been doing without crediting for the, uh, them for their work. And that, according to Fricker itself, is a form of epistemic injustice, right? You're doing an injustice to someone in their capacity as a knower. So you're, so you're disregarding work that came before you. Now, Fricker does, she has two main subspecies of um, epistemic injustice, testimonial and hermeneutic injustice. And I'm not so much interested in testimonial injustice. Testimonial injustice, is, it, it occupies a much bigger part of her book. Um, and it's about uh, situations where you have encounters individual to individual. Um, so the classic example would be someone giving a testimony in court um, and that person being disbelieved or given less credibility because, for instance, they are black or because they are a child. Um, and therefore, just because of that, seen as less trustworthy. So this is just about the individual testimony that someone might give. Hermeneutic injustice is about the Social, actual social structures of knowing stuff. So it's about the question, which kinds of pieces of knowledge, what kind of data, what kind of input actually makes it into collective resources of knowing. So to give you a very sim a bit simplistic idea, um, so a question of hermeneutic injustice might occur um, with things like, you know, what kind of knowledge actually appears in textbooks? If you pick up a textbook on biology, say, what kind of knowledge is in there? Um, and what kind isn't? And why? We invited Merit Hoefsloot uh, to talk further with us about these topics. She's a second year philosophy of science and technology 
a student at the University of Twente, writing her thesis with Marin and also my sister, uh, who I've had a lot of conversations with about these issues. So I thought it would actually be cool to invite her and think along with Anna and I about what we learned from Marin's webinar. Yeah, so I'm Marit, and I am also a second year uh, philosophy of science, technology and society student. So I'm writing my thesis on uh, facial recognition technology for uh, the use of gender identification. Um, here I look at uh, sort of how the developers of these technologies talk about gender and what kind of assumptions and sort of intuitions um, underlie those developments. And I also look at uh, sort of a more philosophical understanding of what gender is. And I try to see whether these two different understandings, so like in the feminist philosophy and by the technology developers can be bridged and uh, technology can be sort of uh, redesigned to describe this more philosophical idea of gender, uh, which is a lot more inclusive and diverse than like the gender binary. And my conclusion is that it's not possible, so we shouldn't be using these technologies. <laughs> If this still sounds a little bit abstract, here's Marit explaining how she applies these concepts in her master thesis. So I think there are sort of two links to be made there. One of them is that, so, I mean, there's about 60 or 50 years worth of feminist philosophy that uh, says, okay, gender is not a binary and gender is fluid. It's not stable. Gender doesn't have anything to do with your appearance. Uh, it can be like completely unrelated. It can be related, but there's no necessary link there. Uh, so a lot of these um, sort of perceptions or perspectives um, are just completely ignored when uh, the, the developers of uh, gender recognition technology create an algorithm that looks at someone's face and then uh, calculates the distance between their eyes or the, the difference in skin color between lips and, and like your actual skin skin and then determines whether you're a man or a woman. Again, this gender binary. So there are the, uh, ideas built in these technologies that have already been debunked 50 years ago, but all those ideas are still being used. Uh, so yeah, the, the knowledge of the feminist philosophers is just completely uh, ignored. And here is another example also from Marit on uh, how this facial recognition technology is actually used in airports. Uh, if you're traveling uh, by airplane, you're in, at an airport and you yeah, you have to go through security, uh, you have to stand in this little machine that then scans your entire body and scans your face and then uh, compares the image on your face to the information that's in your passport. A part of that comparison is also recognizing your gender. And if your gender in your passport does not uh, coincide with what you look like, then uh, you might get like taken apart or like interrogated in a little interrogation room. And these interrogations can get quite like intense as well. So it's just a really horrible situation to be in really. But here the technology is seen as uh, sort of uh, the authority on the matter. 
um, and the the users of the technology. So like the people working at security, they uh, only believe the technology or the results that come out of the machine. They don't believe you as a person when you say, yeah, but I think my gender is something else because I self-identify as a woman, even though I might look like a man or something else completely. So here again, like the, the knowledge or like, yeah, the understanding that people have of their own gender might be like not an authority uh, or uh, the knowledge is not respected and the person is not respected as an authority over their own gender identity, which again, these feminist philosophers for the last 50 years have been arguing for. Yeah, there's just a lot of trust placed in the technology. There's a lot of trust placed in the developer's own intuitions about what gender should be like and people are not really listening to other experts in the field such as feminist philosophers or like people's own perspectives which you are an expert over your own life i think there should be more uh, listening and more trust and more authority placed in the people that actually have the knowledge <laughs> I also remember that Maren during their talk uh, was discussing about this problem with the social model of knowing and a little bit related also to to social epistemology itself. And it was to the fact that the practices that are related to it, to this way of creating knowledge actually can be unjust. And another example, apart from those that you just listened from Maritz, uh, it's this one that Maren introduced on like the whole corona situation and how vaccines have been developed. One issue that might um, sort of be problematic about textbook knowledge is, especially in medicine, is that it often doesn't at all give you any indication as to how um, women's bodies might differ from men's bodies. Um, and this is a huge problem. When and, and I don't, so, you know, this is a rough approximation. I don't mean to suggest that there is um, sort of a close-knit biological definition of men and women. But um, I do think there that sort of men and women can serve as useful hermeneutic approximations in medicine. And what's baffling to me is that medicine often doesn't even use these. Um, so there's a lot of information in there, but most of that information actually refers to or is gleaned from the study of healthy young men. And there's nothing on older people or women or children, nothing. Um, and one issue where we see this right now is the discussion about the AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson vaccines, where um, there's all this controversy around blood clots. And it seems like this actually almost exclusively affects women. And yet none of the vaccine producers have actually gathered any information on this, like not according to gender. And so all the authorities can't do anything but just stopping the vaccine for everyone, even though it might be enough to just stop it for women and continue giving it to men. Brief example. But that could be an example of hermeneutic injustice because sort of information about particular kinds of bodies are not even part of the canon of a given discipline, right? They're not even entering the space of knowledge. While we kept talking and talking about epistemic oppression as well, uh, it was this other example that Maren put, it was very current as well, on how epistemic oppressions are actually embedded 
on a system that is so structural. So here is the example. The first kind of structural injustice happens because your contribution to a body of knowledge isn't recognized. So this could be something like um, in a scientific community, say, one person did a lot of the lab work and the analysis, but their name doesn't appear on the final publication. And this by, by you know, current scientific standards, this should not happen. This is a, a simple, I'd say simple, it's not simple, but this would be a simple matter of, well, apply your own rules, right? People who do the work, they should appear on the publication. Another issue, which Dotson called second order exclusion is, well, it's not just that particular contributions are not recognized, it's that some forms, some kinds of contributions are systematically excluded. So this happens, for instance, when one discipline says about the other, yeah, but what, I mean, what you're doing, that's not knowledge. Like that's not knowledge production. That's just ideology. And this is what, I mean, this is what people often say about gender studies. This is what people sometimes say about post-colonial studies, right? So the, um, the exclusion happens because a whole body of knowledge is discredited by saying, you know, this isn't, this shouldn't even count as knowledge. Um, it's still recognized that it is knowledge in some sense. It's just not up to standards, as some people might say. So the remedy for that would be, well, have better rules, right? Change the rules such that this these kinds of contributions can actually be recognized. Now, the most pernicious kind of exclusion is third level exclusion, where um, you have a situation where Within a system, some contributions can't even be recognized as potential knowledge. And so even changing the rules is not going to help because a simple change of the rules won't actually include any of these contributions, even just as potential knowledge. And I said this is particularly pernicious because it actually comes from the resilience um, of these structures and from the resilience of these communities of knowers that engage in this kind of exclusion, often completely unconsciously. Um, and I think this applies especially to scientific communities. Um, he, he thinks of them not so much as individual people who are each seeking for the truth out there, but rather as a collective that builds on centuries and millennia of knowledge um, and ideas and concepts that were built before them. And based on that, they're then engaging with their own work and their research and the world around them. And so each of these, and that's central, each of these thought collectives has, according to Fleck, a particular thought style. He calls this Denkstil in German. And the thought style determines what would even occur to you as a potential fact or as a potentially interesting research question or as a problem within your discipline? So the, it's not sort of, and this is what makes it, what makes science and also knowing a social endeavor, right? It's not the world that determines scientific problems and questions for you. It's actually your own collective that 
gives the framework for all of this. And in his day, um, he, he was arguing um, in particular against the, a collective of philosophers called the Vienna Circle, um, who actually literally thought that you could just, just observe the world and then write sentences about this. Like, I am observing this, or, you know, scientist X is observing this, if you want to have it more personal. Um, and, and basically in this book from 1935, he said, what an absurd idea. This is absurd. No one does this. If you have, um, when you observe something, you have a boatload of assumptions that go into just observing something. You're never just observing something as if this was a completely neutral and disengaged activity, right? Um, and I love him so much because he came up with this in 1935. And philosophy of science took until the 1970s and 80s to actually not even rediscover him, but rediscover this basic idea that science and knowledge are basically social activities. This part of the talk, actually, Maren also reflected on epistemic oppression and the three levels that are present there and how this is actually reflected on the capacity of people as knowers. So on the different mm -hmm. ways that the contributions should be taken and they aren't. Some of them were related to the fact that they are definitely not recognized as knowers in general, mm -hmm. and the rules of the system are not built for that. And the two other levels reflect to the fact that if they aren't, then the system should be kind of adapt, like adapted, and the rules adapted to actually consider this knowledge. And the others is when definitely the exclusion and the system is so embedded that not even adapting the rules would be there. And um, when discussing this, we found with Fena this discussion very interesting because it was things that we kept wondering during the project and also in the way that we were phrasing the webinars and that they are a little bit of repetitive topics that we have had I think with Aminata, with Jos, with Kata and with Paola, just in very different levels, no Fena? Yeah, it keeps on returning these questions of who is the knower, who is allowed to contribute in knowledge generation and whose issues are even acknowledged in science in general, I guess, or society, perhaps. Yeah, indeed. Following this, we also talked with Anufan Irsul, a master's student at the University of Twente in the Philosophy of Science and Technology master's program. Um, well, first, let her introduce herself and after discuss her thesis. My name is Nanu, and uh, I am a second year PSCS student, uh, so philosophy of science, technology, and society. And uh, yeah, I'm currently writing my thesis, and my supervisor is uh, Madame Bedensen. I mean, my thesis is uh, for a large part on migration, so they're inherent to that is a power dynamic, of course. And yeah, this is also something that I somehow also struggled but also yeah I, I took a really long time basically to reflect also on what it is uh, to write a thesis about something that I refer to as an injustice a global injustice but which I haven't experienced myself uh, so is it fair to you know to instead of uh, I don't know interviewing people or whatsoever so in, instead of you know going uh, to the actual experience or as you said Marit uh, you know people who know best since it's their life I'm going to be the one you know talking about this uh, mm -hmm. 
And I think in the end, I didn't really have the word for it, but then I listened to uh, Maden's uh, talk, and now I have. So it's uh, epistemic exploitation. And I yeah. think this was really what I was hinting at in my thesis, but wasn't really explicit about it, but that it's so important also if, if you identify injustices, even though you may not be the one experiencing them, that it's nevertheless super important to also uh, stand up for them. I mean, it's difficult to say when you feel to be an expert. This is also something Madden addresses. Uh, at the same time, I mean, at some point, you can be sure that you know at least, you know, a fair bit about current uh, political and scientific debates in migration studies. I think then it's also really important that there is also a diversification of sources from where, you know, this standing up against injustice. It's it, it's definitely important to, you know, yeah, to provide platforms as well as access to the right sort of means so that non-dominant groups and societies have the opportunity to speak for themselves. But at the same time, you know, there's also quite a danger in saying, okay, but <laughs> okay, now we have a woman in our group. So, you know, she can talk about the feminist stuff and then we all don't have to deal with it anymore, you know, regardless of whether it's mediated actually, uh, could it be, you know, could it be a facilitation uh, of diversifying the sources or could it actually be a source of moral imagination? Uh, and so far, my conclusion is that it's difficult to say that a photograph can really determine that, right? But there's definitely some way in which photography can at least facilitate understanding if the spectator is also, you know, willing to look at it that way. And I and we have had this conversation in class as well. We have like opened up the conversation on why we're only reading uh, white men, and um, often, often even this conversation is uh, started by uh, like our teachers um, when uh, they present like the syllabus or something like that at the beginning of a course. And when we ask, like, why is this the case? Why can we not uh, read more, uh, like, inclusive philosophy or more diverse philosophy? Um, their answer is often then um, when they when they say that they're giving students a master's education in philosophy, then there's certain expectations to be met at the end of that, uh, like master's uh, degree. Um, for example, you need to have an understanding of the classics like, uh, Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, for example. But, um, I think, yeah, these expectations are either, uh, like implicit and, uh, like societal and we don't necessarily really need to uphold the expectations or they are maybe explicit through like um for example like the dutch government that uh, places certain obligations on uh, master's programs that you need to have a certain uh, like learning goals but why can we not fight those learning goals either so i think that that's not really a good answer um but yeah, it feels like uh, a lot of the teachers, they sort of acknowledge that and they understand that, but they don't really feel like this is a fight that they can fight. They feel like it's a much larger problem or uh, like a long-term uh, issue. So then often what happens is that we get recommended readings from either women or um, like 
more Eastern philosophy or yeah. So, which this is not a solution or we have like a, an entire course, which uh, spans over maybe 10 lectures. And we have one lecture that is specifically about um, more Eastern perspectives, which is also not a solution. <laughs> Madden gave a beautiful example about how living in a world where people are constantly wrong doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing and that we can learn from each other's mistakes. I'm not sure if they're mistakes. Maybe they're more incoherences or just, yeah, exactly. Trial and error, learning process, all of that. Let's listen to Madden discuss this in a more constructive way. Yay! <laughs> So another example, and I'm, I hope I'm getting this kind of right, um, another example that's uh, theory of relativity. You could say, this is the non-diplomatic way of putting this, you could say that someone like Einstein only really started thinking about relativity and space and time and space-time because people had a completely ridiculous idea of what space was like because they actually tried to prove their ridiculous idea with measurements and the measurements com contradicted the idea, but no one knew what to do about it. This is basically the, the idea that space is ether. Um, so like a special substance that's out there in space and waves are waves in ether. And then folks tried to actually measure the speed of light. And it turns out there is no medium in space. What do we do now? And this giant mistake paved the way for the theory of relativity. So all of this, I mean, Einstein just happened because people were fundamentally wrong about the nature of the universe before. Again, wrong, but wrong in very productive ways and wrong in very coherent ways. And that's also why Einstein's theory of relativity is a kind of, it might count as a kind of revolution and a um, sort of direct challenge to a particular kind of thought style. All our conversations with all of them, so with Maren, with Marit and with Nanu, uh, we kept coming through, so we kept discussing these issues of research and education, uh, but we actually wanted to explore a little bit more with them what is actually the impact of this whole discussion about epistemological exclusion, social epistemology, epistemological oppression and epistemic oppression and injustices and so on. Uh, but particularly, um, they reflected a lot on like on these figures of role models and how they imp have impacted their education and the future of the university and their programs uh, from now on. I think um, a lot of it uh, has to do with sort of like role models. I strongly believe in sort of the effect of role models that also if all the teachers in a philosophy department are men, then all the female students might not be as inclined to become philosophy teachers. They do not see it as a possible career path or they do not see how uh, sort of like a philosophy department could be open for their input. And and the same uh, goes for the literature that you read as well. If you only read a philosophy that is written by white men, then any other people might not feel that that is a viable career path for them. Um, and then you never get as, as much Uh, literature from other groups of people as well, because a lot of the times the arguments used against why we only read a certain literature is also that it is qualitatively better because uh, 
like those people have had the education, etc. But they've only had the education because of years of dominance. So it's a it's a vicious spiral. But anyways, I think that a lot of it has to do with role models. So if you would have a course uh, that is taught by um, other than or like people other than white men, then you instantly have like a more diverse discussion as well, I think. Like, for example, now there's uh, one course that is called uh, Ethics and Technology 2, which is now being taught by Madin and uh, Yasmin, um, who are a non-binary person and a woman of color. And even though they have certain expectations to meet uh, regarding learning goals, etc., that people need to have at the end of the course, um, they have also changed uh, the content to fit their own expertise and their own interests because they feel, find it important that students learn about that as well. So just having a more diverse set of teachers can also bring a sort of, yeah, more diverse set of expertise and uh, you read different literature and you have like a role model to look up to and you see like, oh, a non-binary person is my a philosophy teacher, then maybe I can become a philosopher as well. Um so yeah, I think I think a lot of it starts with like the staff <laughs> and then uh, that like spirals into a lot of benefits. But, you know, one of the things that I do like about the program as it is right now is I think it's also a really good thing that, you know, that it's not one specific course that looks at, for example, uh, a colonial dimension in technology uh, or whatsoever, you know, or uh, a feminist perspective. Because there are actually some courses that, you know, take these concepts and use them quite holistically. So I'm thinking, for instance, of uh, history of science and technology. I mean, definitely we could have reflected more on all how positionality informs the research that we read and also the selection of literature that we uh, get to read in the end. But at the same time, I really liked it here that, you know, that it wasn't like, okay, you know, the, the week the week 10, what did you call it? Week 10 ethics. So that it wasn't like a checklist, but that it was something integral to the course and, that, you know, that came up one, every once in a while. But, I mean, that being said, I think I would have really liked it if there would have been more where, where you very concretely dive into these concepts of, okay, what do feminist philosophers say? You know, what, what is a feminist perspective? I, I don't think we've ever had uh, such a lecture. It's not, I, I don't mean to say in any way that, you know, I, I felt uncomfortable in classrooms, but at some point you do feel like uh, knowing that, you know, you identify as a feminist, knowing a, a couple of other students of which you also know, like, okay, so I know that they hold some similar position to mine. And then you also feel like you should be the one addressing that point, you know, when a lecture is about something and there's clearly lacking a feminist perspective, uh, then you also feel as if you are than the one that you know should speak up but that's also not necessarily a position that you want to be in all the time yeah first of all i don't know yeah maybe madit you also recognize this but i think throughout our studies there's quite often that or there have been quite some times where we've discussed the notion of power dynamics but then without ever really you know reading anything about what power dynamics is. I also remember that a classmate at some point said like, you know, like halfway to the program. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I hear people say a lot, you know, power dynamics this and that, but I actually don't know what you mean with that. And then it kind of hit me like, 
yeah, that's 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 really true, you know. Um, <laughs> whereas, you know, the notion of the other, for example, well, that, that's super prevalent in Middle Eastern studies since you're somehow also, you know, embedded in this colonial relation of uh, studying the other foundational works in this discipline so so I'm immediately thinking of Edward Said uh, with Orientalism that that could be very useful in the program and I think more generally I mean also with regard to uh, what you asked Anna I think most to nearly all probably of the authors that we've read are western uh, oriented mm-hmm. and mainly white men and mainly white men. I mean, sometimes also white women. I know that <laughs> Marit and I were both like particularly drawn to these kinds of authors. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> um, what might one do? Um, so first of all, keep the idea in the back of your mind that knowing and learning are social practices. Second, taking the experience of marginalized knowers seriously without expecting them to educate you. And that's difficult. Right. And it's not, I mean, it's not always wrong to ask another, that is, this is not what I'm suggesting, right? That it's always wrong to ask another person um, to tell you something about their experience. But the point would be, um, especially in scientific context, there's a lot of resources already out there. So you don't actually always need the individual, non, the, the individual marginalized knower to educate you. Um, oftentimes you can look for resources yourself um, and and use those, right? And then take those seriously. And the third point would be um, that representation isn't enough. Representation isn't enough to demarginalize particular knowledge communities, right? So what's needed, it's a, um, so if Fleck is right, it's a two-way process. It needs engagement from um, the people who are already mainstream, right? And this, I mean, this also harks back to the question of just don't just let yourself be educated, right? Um, so there's also stuff that, um, from a privilege, from a non-marginalized perspective, there's usually stuff that you can do um, to actually acquire knowledge um, about these kinds of things. Okay, so here we might digress a little bit from the main topic, but yeah. honestly, we thought it was important to point this out because we are making this webinar and the podcast, and we've been laughing throughout the whole time because we're talking about these issues of the creation of knowledge and who is represented, and throughout the whole transcript, like our names have been cut out. Madden has been constantly. Uh, referred to as modern medicine in the transcription software that we used. I was finance. Marit is Marty. <laughs> it, it has sort of censorized us and caused so many funny mistakes. Yeah, we have noticed that also with other translation software when we were having with my very beautiful Latin American accent, you know, that it was being wrong <laughs> all the time, particularly when we were interviewing other people with Latin American we, accents, either yeah. Yeah. and Argentinians, but it didn't have that mistake with people that tend to have more, let's say, native accents. So that just shows you a little bit of the things that are embedded structurally within the technologies yeah. that we use and are relying day to day. Yeah, yeah. This AI has been trained only with very particular voices and it works great with those. But then all the people who don't fit within that 
a small box yeah. it messes it up yeah. and right now we're laughing about it but honestly it's also emblematic for a larger structural problem of course yeah, and it actually can be potentially super harmful and that's the reason why a lot of the debates currently in tech are more kind of pointing towards banning fas uh, facial, haha, <laughs> did you see English second language? Facial recognition, <laughs> um, like that it is mainstream or also with the, all these models that are uh, recognizing like natural language models and so on. Um, because they actually are not acknowledging the multicultural and the like plural worlds that we all are. And that comes back a little bit with some of the principles that we have discussed in previous webinars. Um, but anyway, all of these, to don't continue rambling a little bit, uh, it is very important mm -hmm. that we keep it constantly on the way that we are somehow like designing research, considering the education that we go on the role models yeah. that we are focusing the way to continue whatever we want to do, mm -hmm. either practice or teaching or research or anything. And yeah, so that's the reason why we consider... Thinking plurals. Indeed, indeed. Thinking in plurals and that everything that Maren today and Marit and Nanu showed with their examples as well and with the reflection of the future of the university we wanted to leave you with. Well, hopefully you have now some questions and things to reflect further upon the things that you are using every day and that you consider forgiven, but they have a lot of norms and knowledges given for granted. And that's it. I think we have reached the end of our episode. And... Mm -hmm. Thank you, Maren, and thank you, Nanu, and thank you, Marit, for all, you know, and thank you, Fena, for this super wonderful yeah. conversation. Thank you, Anna. This was the fifth episode of the Dialogical Spaces podcast. We hope that all the questions and discussions emerging from this space help you critically reflect on structural issues affecting diversity and inclusion in your research, education, and practices. You can find all the information in the description of the episode. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is post-produced by Sara Trejos from Sione Studios. Special thanks to Maren, Nanu, and Marit for being part of this. We are Fena and Anna, and we hope that you will join us again. Bye! Ciao!